Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday, November the 7th. Welcome to The Naked Scientist with a very croaky Chris Smith and also Kat. Hello, this week, combating cancer. Researchers have discovered why the immune system normally fails to attack tumours, instead apparently leaving them to run amok around the body. We'll also find out why scientists suspect that viruses might have a much bigger role to play in causing cancers than perhaps we first thought. And also this week, two big brain breakthroughs that you can count on, including how electrical stimulation can boost your mathematical ability and a major discovery that could help stroke victims to make a much better recovery. So if you've got any science questions and anything to do with the science of cancer, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page. To get there, we've made it simple. You go to nakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook, or you can drop us an email. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest breakthroughs from around the world. Kat, what have you got for us? Now, I'm sure that all our listeners out there are very good at maths, though actually I'm pretty rubbish at maths for a scientist. Uh, But around one in five of the population has actually moderate to severe problems dealing with numbers. And maths ability can also be lost as a result of diseases affecting the brain, such as stroke. Now, this obviously causes a lot of problems in daily life, work and employment and so on. And now some fascinating new research from scientists in Oxford and London could bring a boost to people's mathematical ability with the help of an electrical zapping to the brain. And their results are published in the journal Current Biology this week, no pun intended. So you're telling me that zapping someone's brain actually makes their math skills improve? Yes, absolutely. And this whole idea started from previous studies that showed that maths ability seems to be tied up in a particular area of the brain called the right parietal lobe. Now, that's a region on kind of the top of your head, around the crown of your head on the right-hand side. And damage in this area is linked to problems with maths and numbers. So the researchers led by Roy Cohen-Kadosh at Oxford University figured that stimulating the brain with electrical impulses using a non-invasive technique called transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, might actually help to boost maths power. So what did they do to find out whether this was the case? Well, the scientists recruited 15 healthy volunteers who were kind of average at maths and asked them to learn a series of symbols that represented an artificial number system. And at the same time, the researchers used this TDCS brain zapping technique to stimulate the volunteers' brains. And they divided them into three groups. So two got stimulation, uh, two groups got stimulation either on the left or their right parietal lobe. And one group kind of got a sham zapping that only lasted a few seconds and didn't have any effect. And then when the researchers tested the volunteers afterwards, they found that the people who'd had stimulation to their right parietal lobe, this is the maths bit, were more likely to be better at learning the new number system than the people in the other groups. And this improvement was still measurable six months after that original training. It's fascinating. But where does this actually lead us, though? Does this mean that uh, we take your average underperforming kid at school and start zapping their brain to enhance their maths GCSE results? Uh, Not just yet. And we certainly wouldn't recommend that anyone goes around giving themselves an electrical shock in the hope of a 
improving their math skills. And it's unlikely that this is going to turn a complete math dunce into Einstein, but it could actually be very useful for people who do have severe difficulties with maths that hamper their normal life, you know, things just like not being able to count out money. And although we don't know for sure whether this is actually going to work, that's what the researchers are now planning to test in their future experiments. I was talking to a colleague uh, in Australia. He actually works for Radio National uh, in Australia at the ABC. And I was talking to him about this and he said, will it work for love? And I said, <laughs> look, James, because his name's James Carlton. He's one of the news editors. I said, you should be careful because if you connect the electrodes up the right way round or the wrong way round accordingly, then your love portfolio could either expand or contract accordingly, <laughs> couldn't it? Certainly could. What have you got for us? Well, this week, very interesting. Um, scientists have been looking at the question of stroke, and stroke is very common. It's when a part of the brain gets deprived of its blood flow, either because a blood vessel bursts and you get bleeding into the brain, or because, more commonly, there's an obstruction inside a blood vessel which stops the flow of blood, and because brain, has, brain tissue has such a high metabolic rate... If you arrest the blood flow, brain tissue starts to die. Now, that means that there is a region of the brain which is destroyed, but around that region of the brain is an area called the peri-infarct zone, and that tissue doesn't die, but it does do something very interesting, which Tom Carmichael, who's a researcher at UCLA in America, has written up in the journal Nature this week, and this could hold the key to much better treatments and therapies for people who have strokes. What they found by studying mice that they induced small strokes in the brains of is that that peri-infarct or penumbra region in the brain, which isn't killed by the stroke but is affected, cells in that region become much more sensitive to a chemical transmitter substance called GABA, which is one of the brain's inhibitory nerve transmitters. So these cells turn down their electrical activity almost immediately that the stroke happens. But the interesting thing is that it stays turned down for a very long time. Now, acutely, having this GABA signal there is a very good thing because it makes the tissue much less active and therefore its metabolic demands are much lower, which means it helps to protect the tissue when that part of the brain has already been damaged. But those bits of brain could also help to help someone recover through things like physiotherapy by taking over some of the functions of the lost bit of brain tissue adjacent if they can be made to work properly again. So what this group did was to take these mice and then experiment with a, a, an experimental chemical called L655708, which is a drug that can block this GABA neurotransmitter discreetly in those bits of the brain. And what they find in these mice is that when this drug is given from three days after a stroke, the animals show a dramatic improvement in their performance, almost down to being as good at performing a simple motor task as non-stroked-out controls. And, OK, this is a and it's a jump to go into a human. But this suggests this could be a very big and important breakthrough because at the moment we don't have anything to throw at people who've had a stroke apart from intensive physiotherapy. And it is a very common problem and it does make lots of people disabled very commonly. Kat? Yeah, well, that's, that's something that certainly my family are affected by strokes. So I'll be really interested to see where that goes. Now, also in the news this week, scientists have made a breakthrough that could provide a new way to combat cancer. And Cambridge University researcher Professor Doug Fearon has discovered that when cancers develop, they attract stem cells from elsewhere in the body. Now, these stem cells, which carry a marker called FAP, seem to produce immune-suppressing chemicals that prevent the immune system from attacking the tumour. But remove these cells, and the cancer then becomes vulnerable to immune attack. The problem that we wanted to solve was how did the tumor microenvironment prevent killing of tumor cells, cancer cells, by immune cells. We approached the problem by asking if there were cells in the tumor microenvironment that you actually would find in other places where we 
thought immune suppression would be physiologically reasonable, like healing wounds or even the uterus and placenta. And there was a cell type that you could find in healing wounds and in placenta that had first been described in 1990 by Lloyd Old, present in essentially all human adenocarcinomas. This cell can be recognized by its expression of a membrane protein, which we'll call FAP or FAP, which is an acronym for fibroblast activation protein. So using this as a membrane protein to identify a specific cell, we devise a genetically modified mouse strategy in which we could kill FAP-expressing cells conditionally after tumors had formed in the mice to see what would the effect be on immune killing in the tumor. So your theory is that something is stopping the immune system attacking a cancer and that these cells that appear to be recruited from around an animal's body, these ones that are FAP positive, they make this fibroblast activation protein, they're the cells you believe that are suppressing the immune system, so if you get rid of them, the immune system should be able to attack the tumour. Yes, that was a hypothesis we wanted to test, was if we were to kill that cell and only that cell in the tumour, could the immune system then control tumour growth? The outcome of the experiment was that when we did deplete the tumor microenvironment of these cells, the immune system did indeed kill the tumor or reduce the number of uh, viable cells in a tumor within 48 hours. How did you get rid of the FAP-positive cells in the cancers in the mice? That's been a very nice development over the last few years of where you can target the expression of human diphtheria toxin receptor to particular cell types genetically in modified mice because mice don't have a diphtheria toxin receptor. And if you give diphtheria toxin, the receptor internalizes that toxin. The toxin turns off protein synthesis in the cell, and the cell dies within 24 hours. So the experiment is based on the fact we made mice in which the diphtheria toxin receptor would be expressed only in FAP-positive stromal cells and nowhere else. So you put tumors into a mouse. They get these FAP-positive cells in there. You delete those cells using this diphtheria toxin technique, and the tumors then regress. They did in 48 hours. Either didn't grow or actually got slightly smaller. And in addition, the number of viable cells that we found in the tumor was decreased by about a half to two-thirds. So there was overall maybe about 80% fewer viable cells in that tumor than in the control tumor just 48 hours after the addition of diphtheria toxin. Is this exclusive to the experiments you've done, or would you find the same population of cells in any kind of cancer, and therefore the technique would generalize to other tumor types? Well, as I said, the, this cell was discovered by Lloyd Old in 1990, published in a PNAS paper, showed that it was present in essentially all human adenocarcinomas. So if the FAP-expressing cells in humans have the same function as they appear to in mice, then potentially if we could get at that cell in humans, most human adenocarcinomas might become more susceptible to immune control. And do you know why those cells stop the immune system attacking the tumor? The only insight we have now, which is pretty limited, is that we know we can block the tumor killing by giving neutralizing antibodies to tumor necrosis factor and interferon gamma to cytokines made by immune cells, uh, interferon gamma, particularly by T cells. So we presume somehow that FAP-expressing cells are inhibiting the tissue response to these two cytokines. 
So the next step will presumably be to ask, can you ubiquitously get rid of FAP in the long term and see what happens to these animals? Will they stay healthy? Mm. Neat cells are found in uh, bone marrow, bone, adipose tissue, skeletal muscle, retina, olfactory epithelium in the nose, tongue. So a variety of different normal tissue sites, uh, which has not been appreciated before, and it's looking like they have some important functions in these tissues, but we're still working on that. So I don't think it'll be a therapeutic option to simply kill these cells all over the body. I think somehow we have to interfere with their function selectively in the tumor. So we need to be a little more sophisticated. We need to understand what these cells do. Do they make a protein that we could inhibit in some way? Can we inhibit how they accumulate in the tumor? Those are the approaches we have to develop. We can't have sort of a blunderbuss approach of killing them off in the entire individual. So is that the next step then, to try and work out how you can target just those cells in just the tumor environment and not have ubiquitous killing throughout the body because there probably will be consequences? So what we are doing is we've looked at the genes that are being expressed in fap-expressing cells in adipose tissue, skeletal muscle, bone, and tumor. And then we go to the tumor and say, what are the genes uniquely expressed in the tumor FAP cells? Might they be related to immune suppression? Might they be targets that we could uh, have some therapy directed at? And we're right in the middle of that. That was Cambridge University's Douglas Fearon talking with Chris. And that's a really fantastic discovery. And it was published this week in the journal Science. Chris. Thanks, Kat. Well, also this week, scientists have made an interesting breakthrough in understanding how bacteria fend off attack from microorganisms. Seems strange to think that bacteria infect us, but they also suffer from coughs and colds like we do in the form of viral attack from things like viruses called bacteriophages. And there's a paper in the journal Nature this week by Josiane Garneau, who's at Laval University in Quebec. And what she and her colleagues have done is to discover that bacteria actually have a little genetic library where they keep a record of all of the things that have attacked them in the past, and they use that library to recognise threats when they come in again and deal with them. This genomic library is a specialised structure called CRISPR, which stands for Clustered Regularly Interspersed Short Palindromic Repeat Region, which is why they call it CRISPR for short. And what happens is that if a bacterium is infected with one of these viruses, bacteriophage-type viruses, the bacterium usually gets killed. But about one time in a million, she found, and she was using a type of streptococci, the bacterium takes a little piece of the genetic material of the bacteriophage and it puts it into its own genome, into this CRISPR region. Then in future, if the bacterium gets challenged by that bacteriophage again or by other malignant pieces of DNA called plasmids, which can occasionally come in and hijack or add genes to bacteria, sometimes they're good but not not always, and so some bacteria sometimes want to fend them off, what happens is that the bacterial cell uses this CRISPR region, this library of genetic information of past threats. It compares the genetic sequence of the incoming bacteriophage DNA with the DNA sequence it's got stored. If the two match up, it uses a module or an enzyme called CAS, C-A-S, which is like a molecular pair of scissors to chop up the bacteriophage DNA and stop it actually hijacking or taking over the bacterial cell using a technique called RNA interference. Now, you might say, well, that's fantastic, but why does this help us? Well, actually, bacteria are very useful as tools for biotechnology. They're used to make drugs and other chemicals that are useful for humans, and they also make food. 
They use, they're used in the cheese industry. And if the bacteria that are your cheese culture or your cheese-making culture or your drug-making culture fall, fall victim to some of these bacteriophages, then it can destroy your whole culture. So if you can render the bacteria immune to attack from some of these common phages, you can protect your bacterial culture. And that's what they're suggesting that we could use this research for. Over and above that, I just think it's wonderful to think that you can get bacteria which are nonetheless resistant to bacteria uh, attacking viruses. It's like giving a bacterium a dose of a flu vaccine. Well, that's it for our news this week. You can catch up on all of the news stories we covered on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. All the references for those stories we covered are there too. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith and Katani, who is with us this week from the National Cancer Research Institute's conference in Liverpool. Now, here's an easy science question. What temperature does water freeze at? You'd probably be forgiven for thinking the first answer that pops into your head. It's zero degrees. Duh. But actually... That's not necessarily the case. And scientists at the University of Leeds believe that supercooled water may be implicated in the crash landing of a British Airways 777 jet at Heathrow in 2008 when both engines lost their power. Here, Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham met Ben Murray in his lab at Leeds for a demonstration. So we've just got a chilled bath. It's at minus 7 degrees C right now. And in that chilled bath, I've got some bottles of bog-standard mineral water. So we can see on the top that it's, it's minus 7. And you look in, these aren't frozen. That, that's wrong, isn't it? Because doesn't water freeze at zero? Ice melts at zero degrees C, yes. But water does not necessarily freeze at zero degrees C. And this is quite a nice demonstration of that. Water can exist in, a, in a, what's called a supercooled state. So it can exist below zero degrees C in a liquid form. In order to turn it into ice, you have to have the right type of particle or the right surface present to catalyze the ice nucleation process or the ice formation process. So what are you going to do to it? We're just going to take a bottle out. And as you can see, it looks like liquid water. It's moving around in the bottle. I just feel that, yeah. It's it definitely, cold. definitely cold. And now what I'm going to do is just pour it onto this glass dish. There's a little bit of ice in that glass dish, which should um, trigger the crystallization. Okay, there it goes. You can now see it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's turning to slushy ice in almost a pyramid shape as you oh, pour it. it. Fell over. <laughs> instant, instant ice. So the supercooled water, as soon as it hits something it can freeze on, it does so. And you can hear it it's sloshing a little bit there. Oh, it's going to overflow. <laughs> so there we go. You poured a bottle of water onto a dish, and as you poured it, it became ice. I ah, yes, here you are, just to prove nothing, uh, there's nothing funny going on. We can just eat a little bit of it. Okay, can, can I try that? So this is not, there no, wasn't some caramel. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Just cold. Just cold. <laughs> and it's definitely ice. Mmm. Put rather too much in my mouth then. <laughs> it's, it's quite a vivid demonstration. It's it, it instant as well. There was no mm. slow freezing process. It was... Pshoom. You've done this many times as as an experiment you study ice and and this supercool water in clouds but you made the connection between what we've just seen demonstrated here and the plane crash in 2008 when the boeing 777 crash landed short of the runway at heathrow I was actually made aware of this issue by um, a colleague in Asymptote called John Morris. He's a small company down in Cambridge. 
he made me aware that um, it was something to do with ice in the fuel system that was apparently caused this fuel blockage which caused the plane to lose power as it was approaching the runway, which obviously caused it to crash land. In the crash investigation report, the official report on the accident, the engineers implicitly assumed that water droplets below zero degrees C existed as ice. And then they went on to describe experiments they'd done where they noticed these apparent ice particles became sticky at about minus 8 degrees C. We read this report and we just thought, hang on, first of all, water doesn't freeze at zero degrees C. Water droplets will exist and stay liquid right down to much lower temperatures. And what's probably happening in that fuel system is that water droplets are hitting surfaces and then freezing when they collide on those surfaces. So we just set about using our existing equipment that we use for atmospheric cloud research to show that water droplets suspended in jet fuel are actually super cool. And, and that's what we, sh- we demonstrated. In fact, the water droplet suspended in this jet fuel only froze at about minus 36, minus 37 degrees C. So the jet fuel doesn't catalyse the freezing process. So in jet fuel, you assume then, with planes flying above us now, there is this super cold water in there? Yes. I'm obviously not an expert in aviation and uh, (laughs) jet engine fuel systems. But yes, you would expect at the low temperatures that planes fly at, that some of the water in the fuel system will exist in a super cool state. And then when it collides with surfaces, it can then freeze. I still fly. I don't think this is a major problem. It's only happened a handful of times. But it has happened a handful of times, and I think it is important to get to the bottom of it. That was Ben Murray from the University of Leeds talking to Richard Hollingham from the Planet Earth podcast. And if you'd like to see that cool boom experiment for yourself, there is a video on the Planet Earth online website. So you visit their site, which is planetearth.nerc, that's N-E-R-C dot A-C dot U-K, and then you click on podcasts and video. Now, we'll also be journeying to somewhere else very cold, excuse my cold, later in the show, when Diana O'Carroll will be finding out what time the sun appears to set at the top of Everest. That's our question of the week, and it's on the way. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. Now, ten years ago, a seminal paper entitled The Hallmarks of Cancer was published in the journal Cell, examining the state of the nation in cancer research and making some predictions to the future. Now, I'm here at the NCRI conference in Liverpool, which is the the UK's biggest cancer conference, bringing together scientists, clinicians, everyone in the cancer research community from around the world. And I'm really pleased to be joined by one of the authors of that report. The two authors were Douglas Hanahan and Robert Weinberg. And here's Robert Weinberg with me today. And he's going to be uh, talking at the conference about where we are 10 years on from the paper. So good afternoon. Hello. Thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about your your original paper, The Hallmarks of Cancer. So um, what did you and Doug actually look at in that paper? Well, Doug Hanahan and I are scientists who are interested in understanding what causes cancer, how normal cells become converted or transformed into cancer cells. And uh, one day we were at a conference together in Hawaii, walking down the mouth of an extinct volcano. We came to the notion that it might be very useful if we were to codify the principles by which normal cells become converted into cancer cells. The cancer research literature was vast, but we believed there was a small number of underlying principles by which we could explain the entirety of the cancer formation process. And, and Doug Hanhan came up with the title, The Hallmarks of Cancer. There were six of them, in fact. So what are these kind of six fundamental principles of cancer cells? That cancer cells stimulate their own growth, that they're resistant to inhibitory signals that might otherwise stop their growth, that they 
they can proliferate, they can multiply forever, that they can engender the growth of blood vessels into tumors to supply nutrients to the tumors, uh, that they be- can become resistant to their own programmed cell death, sometimes called apoptosis, and that with the passage of time they can become invasive and metastatic, that is to say they can spread throughout the body of the cancer patient. And when you presented uh, this, this kind of gathering of ideas to the scientific community in your paper, how well was it responded to? Well, like most review articles, this one was such a review article, we expected it to be cited briefly and then disappear like a stone thrown into a small pond. But in fact, it was cited more and more in the uh, years since uh, 2000. Uh, I believe even tens of thousands of times, much to our astonishment, we never expected this. And it seems a bit strange to think that no no one had actually sat down and thought about what is cancer actually like before that point? Well, many people had thought about what cancer is like from many different perspectives, but we thought there might be a common perspective and a common set of rules by which cancer cells arise, and those are the rules we articulated. Now, 10 years later, we're doing an update on that, and we're almost done writing that update on, on the hallmarks of cancer to begin to indicate what new insights have happened since then. And so where, where are we now? What's happened over the past 10 years? And did you actually make any predictions back then? And have they come true? Well, actually, we, we didn't make that many predictions, but we have learned a lot in the past decade. Cancer research has thrived, and we learn more and more about why cancer cells proliferate uncontrollably. One thing we've learned is that cancer cells must somehow evade destruction by the immune system. Another thing we've learned is that cancers or tumors are complex tissues, and indeed contain as many distinct cell types as normal tissues do, and the various distinct cell types in a tumor interact one with the other in order to create this ever-growing tissue, which we call a tumor. Because we heard about earlier that fantastic new research from uh, Doug Fearon and his colleagues, and it's really looking at the role of cancer almost like being a rogue organ. So you've not just got the cancer cells, but you've got all the supporting cells that have been hijacked into this tumor. That encapsulates the finding precisely so. Uh, Still, uh, we would like to be able in the future to mobilize the, the powers of the immune system in order to eliminate tumors. And that's not a place where we're at yet, even though people have been trying for two decades to direct the powers of the immune system to eliminate tumors that have arisen in the body of a cancer patient. And so you're now revisiting your work, you're writing a new paper, I don't know, Hallmarks of Cancer 2, The Revenge or something. <laughs> have you thought of a name? <laughs> uh, I think it's just going to be uh, revisited, Hallmarks Revisited. Nothing more dramatic and we're not going to make a follow-up movie either. <laughs> and where do you think we're going to be going in the next 10 years? Where you know, will, will we be curing many more cancers and how is this research leading to that? Well, there's two areas of this research. One, what causes the cancer? And two, can you use the findings on the causes of cancer in order to develop new types of therapies? And in fact, over the last 30 to 40 years, we've learned an enormous amount about why cancer cells grow uncontrollably. If you would have asked me about that uh, question three or four decades ago, I would have shrugged my shoulders and told you I had no idea. But now we understand that in enormous detail. But unfortunately, only a small number of those insights have been converted into truly useful therapeutics. Over the next decade, we're going to see an explosion of developments in the uh, new types of drugs that are created, which can act either on their own or more often in concert with other drugs to really uh, 
wipe out tumors or at least hold them at, at a s small or slow state of growth that will be tolerable for the cancer patient. So this is the idea of much more targeted therapy that's aimed at kind of the molecular faults in a tumor rather than just, oh, it's that kind of cancer. Uh, precisely so. Uh, many of the chemotherapeutics we use today were invented three and four decades ago and are simply toxins that happen to kill cancer cells slightly more easily or readily than they kill normal tissue. But of course, they create a lot of side damage, side effects. And in the future now, we will increasingly be able to tailor-make drugs that specifically hit the cancer cells and thus the tumor without creating uh, damage, without wreaking havoc in adjacent normal tissue. And we've made a lot of progress in treating cancer over the past few decades. If you look at the change in survival statistics, maybe even just over the past 20 or 30 years, yes, many indeed. more people do survive cancer and live for much longer. But obviously we have a lot further to go. And where, where would you like to see the state of, of cancer treatment and survival in 10 years? Well, I, I would like to see uh, solid tumors being uh, treated uh, more effectively. Right now, advanced solid tumors from the colon and the pancreas and the lungs are really formidable enemies and we don't really know how to stop them. It would be nice, I think it's even realistic to assume that 10 years from now, some of those tumors will be stopped in their tracks, caused to shrink. They may not be caused to totally disappear, but they will be kept at a small size that will render the patient uh, fully normal in terms of his or her lifestyle and will create a chronic, albeit tolerable, disease. That's a reasonable prospect uh, 10 years from now without promising any major miracles. Well, that is something absolutely fantastic to look forward to. That's uh, Robert Weinberg from uh, MIT, and he'll be with us for the rest of the show and really looking forward to, uh, to hearing more about some of that. Chris. Thank you very much. Katani up at the NCRI conference in Liverpool. Now, we heard from Stephen Gale on Facebook, and he said, I heard that radiation treatment for breast cancer can cause leukaemia, and is that true? The answer is, Stephen, yes, unfortunately, it is true, because the way in which some cancers are treated is with radiotherapy. Radiotherapy is a form of ionising radiation, but like X-rays, and as a result, when that ionising radiation goes through your body, it does damage cancer cells, and it tends to damage cancer cells more than healthy tissue, because cancer cells are more vulnerable to damage, because they don't have such good DNA repair mechanisms. But the point is, it can still damage healthy tissue. And so in the course of dealing with one tumour, it can increase the risk. It doesn't necessarily give you cancer, but it can increase the risk of developing another type of cancer. And very often bone can be targeted or bone marrow cells. And therefore you can get secondary tumours developing later in life as a consequence of having been treated. But if you take certain chemotherapy drugs, they don't necessarily have that same risk. So they're not ionising radiation. So it depends on the kind of treatment that you get. In Second Life, hello to everyone listening in Second Life, Bao Er says metastasis seems a bit weird to me. I can understand a normal cell going nuts, but metastasis seems rather like a behaviour. And indeed it is, because what's happening when a cancer spreads is that the cancer is spitting off cells that have gained the ability to autonomously migrate through other tissue layers, ignoring normal boundaries, to move to a distant part of the body and then move into that part of the body where other cells, which are not cancerous but are healthy tissue, have been manipulated by chemicals produced by the cancer to flock to that area and produce, for all intents and purposes, a nest for that cancer cell to move into and then begin to grow and then you develop another secondary cancer and that's the metastasis and it's a complicated process that scientists are only just beginning to understand if you'd like to send in any questions to us here at the naked scientists we're talking about the science of cancer this week then do please send them in the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com you can tweet at naked scientists or write on our facebook page it's just naked scientists on facebook 
Now, for many years, scientists have known that viruses are the direct causes of some cancers, and probably the best described example is HPV, that's the human papillomavirus, which is linked to cervical cancer. But recently, researchers at Cambridge University uncovered evidence that viruses might be involved in the causation of a much wider range of cancers than we first thought. And one of the scientists behind that discovery is Dr Stacey F. Stathew. He's with us now. Hello, Stacey. Hi, Chris. Firstly, Stacey, how do scientists actually think that viruses cause cancer in the first place? Well, there are a number of different ways that viruses can cause cancer. Um, From a historical perspective, um, if we look back uh, maybe 100 years ago, um, it was first shown that if you took uh, tumours from chickens, sarcomas, you could mash them up and take a a filter which lacked any cells, inject it to a a normal chicken, and it would would develop a a tumour. And it was subsequently shown that uh, the virus responsible was a retrovirus, and retroviruses are kind of special viruses in that as part of their life cycle, they integrate into the host genetic material. And in that particular case, the virus encoded its own oncogene, which it had captured historically from a cellular proto-oncogene. An oncogene being a gene that makes cells grow or causes cancer. Causes proliferation of the, of the cell. Um, so that, that's one example of a virus causing cancer, the capturing of an oncogene and subsequent expression in a cell. And they knew from that experiment that it had to be a virus because if you mashed up the cells to destroy the cells, then the only thing that could survive that process, presumably, is, is a virus. It's not, otherwise, it's too small. Absolutely. So, so that kind of was a, a landmark discovery in that it was a filtrable agent, um, a very small entity, a virus, which uh, actually transmitted the tumour from chicken to chicken. What's the benefit to a virus of transforming, making a cell become malignant in the first place? Well, there, there, I, I guess you'd say that, uh, that there isn't much of a benefit. I mean, these are uh, accidents that happen um, when a virus is, uh, can't complete its normal lytic cycle, uh, and as a byproduct of that, a tumour occurs. So viruses, in, many viruses encode genes which will push the cells into replication and cause cells to proliferate to help the virus be produced. But normally the outcome of that is death of the cell. Okay, so it's only in specific circumstances where you haven't got complete lytic destruction of a cell by a virus that a tumour can, can arise. So in other words, the viruses are making things that make cells grow more because a cell that's growing more is good for a virus to grow in because growing cells are more metabolically active. Absolutely. But occasionally an accident happens and something goes wrong genetically which damages that cell's DNA or rearranges it in some way so it can become potentially malignant. Absolutely. And a, and a classic example of that you mentioned already is a human papillomavirus which uh, causes uh, cervical cancer. And... Um, it's a real rare event where one gets a, an integration of a papillomavirus, which is now that is not a normal part of the viral life cycle. And when integration happens, you can get expression of uh, one or two of the viral genes, um, which cause cells to proliferate. But because the virus is integrated, it can't complete its normal life cycle, and the consequence is uh, proliferation and tumour formation. Integration being where the virus has put its genetic material inside the, the cell's genome. Absolutely, yeah. that's right. So that's all very well. We, we can go looking at, at tissues and we can look for that bacteria... No, sorry, we can look for the viral hallmark mm. in the cell's DNA. You've done some work now saying that actually if we just go looking for cells that bear a viral hallmark of having been damaged in this way, you find some, but actually there's evidence that viruses may be underlying a lot more in the way of cancers than we first thought. Yeah, sure. I mean, this has been a long-standing issue in in the the field of virology, the so-called hit-and-run hypothesis of a tumour formation where a virus can enter a cell, express some genes, make a, say, change to a cell to cause it to become cancerous, 
but then disappear, actually be lost without trace from that tumour. But of course, how do you study that? It's, it's a very difficult question to address. And so uh, what we try to do is to experimentally establish a system where we could uh, examine whether a virus could actually undertake a hit, i.e. enter a cell and express something, but then be cleared once a tumour had been initiated. But obviously leaving a bit of a stink behind in the form of the genetic damage you were talking about that could make that cell cancerous. Absolutely. And if you went looking, you'd say there's no virus there, but but the footprint is there nonetheless. Exactly. So, you know, if if the hit-and-run hypothesis is correct, of course, it may be that uh, viruses could actually be uh, associated with many more cancers than we currently appreciate because there's no means of associating that virus genetically with a particular tumour. How did you do it? Right, well, this was... (laughs) Okay, so this was actually quite a a tricky uh, experimental procedure in which we used uh, transgenic mice which had copies of an activated oncogene but would only be active, activated, once a virus which expresses a particular enzyme which would be engineered into the virus uh, was expressed in that cell to mediate activation of a cellular oncogene. Once we infected the mice... Any cell that got hit by the virus, where you got expression of this enzyme, which would then trigger this oncogene, that would induce a tumour. And so the question was, if we followed that tumour, was the virus always retained in that cell, or was there subsequent loss of the virus? And what we found was that if we looked at the tumours from animals, that uh, inevitably the viral DNA had been lost from the tumours, but the tumours were all the hallmarks of a virus having once been there. We took this uh, study on further by showing that one could actually vaccinate these animals prior to delivery of this uh, viral enzyme that we cloned into the virus and show 100% protection against the virus-induced tumours. So this was an experimental system demonstrating hit-and-run oncogenesis and showing that vaccination would be very effective in preventing tumour induction. And just briefly, what do you think the implications of this are then? This suggests that a lot of the cancers that we're (laughs) saying are caused by other things, there may actually have in the early evolution of that cancer been a virus there causing this problem. Sure, and so if if one looks at certain cancers where a virus is sometimes associated but not always associated with the cancer, could it be that uh, in those cancers where the virus has been lost that there had been an initiating event at one time in the past? And, of course, the only way one can realistically prove this in the human population is to develop novel vaccines. So I think the impetus now is to put a lot more effort into the development of vaccines and to roll them out to see if we can actually prevent tumours which uh, you wouldn't necessarily suspect of having a viral etiology. Stacey, thank you. That's Dr Stacey F. Stathew. He's from the Department of Pathology at the University of Cambridge, and he'll be with us for the rest of the programme. So if you have any questions about viruses and how viruses might be linked to cancer, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or send us an email, chris at thenakedscientists.com. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and McCatani. Now, still to come, we'll answer your questions about cancer and Diana finds out if days are longer at the peak of a mountain in our question of the week. But now it's time to join Mira and Dave and they've gone to a noisy car park to explore the engineering basis of ultrasound, something, of course, which is very useful in the diagnosis and screening for cancer. 
This week on Naked Engineering, Dave and I are going to be looking into how ultrasound works. Now, Dave, you do always take me to glamorous locations. We're lingering on the street outside of a multi-storey car park. Now, what has this got to do with ultrasound? Well, to understand how ultrasound works, it's easy to start off with conventional sound. Sound is basically a vibration in the air which travels through the air. So when I'm talking here, basically I'm making the air vibrate in my throat, that's causing the air in front of it to vibrate, the air in front of that to vibrate, the air in front of that to vibrate, until it makes your ear vibrate so you can hear me. Now, what's interesting, and the reason why I brought you to this beautiful location, is if I make a very loud noise, about sort of 40 metres away, there's a great big wall. And so if I make that loud noise, it's going to be a large amount of sound vibration going out to that wall, it's going to hit that wall, it can't carry on, all it can do is bounce back, and we should get an echo. Okay, um, so we've got a lot of cars around us though, so I guess the noise you make is going to have to be quite loud. Yeah, you're right. Um, It could work with a clap. The problem is my hands now hurt after clapping far too much. And so I'm going to try and make a very loud beepy noise. Okay, let's hear the echo then. Yeah, I really heard that echo actually, and it only took about half a second to come back. Something like that, yes. Sound travels at 300 metres a second, so it's got to travel there and come back again. And so probably half a third of a second. If we go a bit closer, it should be a bit quicker. So if you hear a whole series of echoes of a whole series of objects, you can work out how far away they are by how long it takes the echo to get back. Is this the principle then used to try and image things and then see where something is using sound? That's right. If you know the direction the sound has gone out in and come back in, and you know how long it took, you know exactly where it is. So you can build up a three-dimensional image. It's also how sonar works, so how you find submarines underwater. Another form of sound that can be used for imaging is ultrasound, and somebody that uses this for medical imaging is Graham Treese, based at the engineering department here at the University of Cambridge. Ultrasound is um, a higher frequency than normal sound, so it's not stuff that you can actually hear with your ears, but it is still a a vibration, it's just at a much higher frequency. High-frequency sound actually uh, travels into um, skin. It won't travel past bone, but it travels in soft tissue. So using sound, you can see into anything which is soft tissue. So that includes um, imaging babies in the womb. As you say, that's what most people have heard of. But it also includes imaging, say, liver or kidneys or muscles um, or anything which is soft tissue, really. And I guess normal sound would do the same thing, but it's got a really long wavelength, so you wouldn't be able to see any good detail. You're quite right. The wavelength is much longer, and that means that um, the resolution with which you can see is, is, is no good for actually looking at the detail inside people. Yeah, that's right. So you've got a, a setup here of an ultrasound machine. How does this all work together to provide an image? Most um, ultrasound probes are a 1D array of little crystals. So it's, say, 200-odd crystals in a row. Those crystals, when you, you fire them with a little bit of um, electricity, vibrate and that vibration uh, generates the ultrasound. The frequency with which you use um, the electricity to find them with generates a particular frequency of ultrasound. You usually have to apply a gel, say, onto the skin um, before actually using this probe. Why is that necessary to help image? What you're seeing in the image is the amount of sound reflected back from tissue. And sound reflects when uh, there's a big change. So, for instance, if you clap or ping next to a wall... The sound reflects off the wall because the air is not very dense at all and the wall is very dense, so you get the sound reflecting back. And it's the same in in tissue. You're seeing reflections of mainly different densities in the tissue. Now, the problem is if you just hold a normal ultrasound probe in air, the air is not dense at all, so all the sound basically just reflects straight back without ever going into the body at all. So you have to have what's called a coupling gel, or or in fact water um, does a reasonably good job as well, between the probe and the tissue 
to remove all the air so that the sound actually gets into the tissue rather than just coming straight back as soon as it hits air. So the probe is producing a a beam of sound into your body and it steers that around and listens for reflections coming back. That's actually quite an important point, yes, of course. If you only had one um, element producing sound, it would produce sound in, in, in all directions and you wouldn't know where the reflections were coming back from. And there's actually a little lens on the surface of the probe which focuses the sound in a plane. So you, effectively you get a sort of thin beam of sound coming out. OK, well, you do have some of the gel and also some water next to you. So could we perhaps see this in action? I mean, there's no chance of you being pregnant, so I guess um, you're just going to be putting it on your arm. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, in fact, the probe I'm using is, is a sort of higher frequency probe. You'd use a lower frequency probe for pregnant women because the lower frequencies see further into the body. Um, higher frequencies don't see as far, but with better resolution. OK, so you've just dipped the probe into some water and it's now on your arm now, just below your wrist, and an image has come up. And it's actually quite clear. It's a grayscale image, but you can quite clearly see the muscles. Yeah, you can, um, you can see all the tendons and the muscles in the image. And in fact, if I waggle my my fingers you can see different bits of my muscles moving as they're waggled what's happening is that um, little pulses of sound are being sent into the tissue and then they're received back the next element along in the transducer is then fired and then that sends a pulse into the tissue and that's received back and that's repeated lots of times so you have one to two hundred different echoes and responses now each of those is a vertical line in the image that you're seeing and so when you put them all together you get what looks like essentially a 2D cross-section through my muscles. This explains just how the whole process works to allow us to just see inside our bodies. But you're using ultrasound in a slightly different way in your research, Graham. Um, Normally with ultrasound images you see just the amount of sound that's being reflected back from tissue boundaries. And that's very good for looking at lots of things. Um, But what we're looking at is using the same signal, so the same ultrasound, um, but to look at tissue stiffness. Um, And this is really interesting because there are quite a lot of physiological conditions where stiffer tissue means something. So, for instance, if you have a a lump or a bump, in a sense we're trying to produce a way of imaging that lump, a bit like manual palpation, you know, clinicians prod a lot. And what they're feeling for is essentially stiff bits under the surface. Well, if you can image them instead, you can see how stiff they are and exactly what shape they are and how deep they are, and you can get it with a much better resolution than just feeling with your fingers. And I guess if you're using an ultrasound probe, you can go a lot deeper than you could do by poking with fingers. Yeah, in general that's true. So with this technique you can see a stiff thing which is only, say, a millimetre across, four or five centimetres deep, and you probably wouldn't feel that if you prodded. How does this actually work then? So why are you able to see differences in stiffness and to what scale, I guess? In normal ultrasound, what you actually see on the image is the amount of sound being reflected, as I've said. Now, we can use exactly the same signal but what we do is acquire lots of ultrasound images and then we compare them. And by looking at the way the tissue moves um, between each of these images, we can work out how it's deforming as you press slightly with the probe and that can give us information about how stiff the tissue is. So if you imagine a very stiff thing embedded in some very soft material, if you pushed it, what would happen is the soft material would squish together and the stiff bit would just move um, without squishing. And that's what we're detecting. Essentially, we're measuring the deformation, and then you take the gradient of that. That gives you something called strain, and we can relate that to the stiffness of the tissue. What makes it perhaps better, or why is it beneficial to use this over current methods of looking for or finding tumours? Well, you're seeing something completely different. So normal ultrasound is quite good at looking at soft tissue tumours, but it, it doesn't show you stiffness. So there are already 
reasons to believe that that will improve either a diagnosis of tumours, so we're, we have a pilot study looking at breast tumours at the moment, or at least help to decide whether to go ahead and have a biopsy, which is what normally happens if someone's suspected of having a tumour. Um, so it may, it may help, for instance, in reducing the number of biopsies that, that need to happen. OK, well, I look forward to seeing these in our hospital soon. Thank you very much, Graeme, and thank you, Dave. That's it for Naked Engineering this week. Thank you, Mira. And as many hospitals already have ultrasound machines with those required capabilities, Graeme Treese, who you heard there, hopes that his new technique will become standard practice within the next five years. That was Mira Senthalingham and Dave Ansell, and they were talking to Cambridge University engineer Graeme Treese. And if you'd like to see what those ultrasound pictures Graham was describing actually look like, we've got a video edition of that episode of Naked Engineering on our website at nakedscientists.com slash engineering. Thank you, Kat. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. Kat, you're up in Liverpool at the NCRI conference with Bob Weinberg. Yes, it's just kicking off here. And now we've had a question in uh, for Bob from Callum Wright, who's in Cambridge. Now, he says, uh, we do a lot of cancer studies using cancer cells that are growing in the lab, these can- cancer cell lines. But one of the hallmarks of cancer is that, is that they change, they evolve, they pick up genetic faults. How do we know that these cell lines are still a good model for studying, or are they? Well, in fact, they're not. Uh, the more we learn about cancer cells that are grown in the Petri dish outside of the, of the body of a mouse or human, the more we appreciate that uh, with the passage of time, they become less and less representative of the cancer cells that are in the body of a cancer patient. And as a consequence, one has to... to to devise various kinds of new cancer cell lines that more closely approximate the cancer cells inside the body of a patient. And do we have to have more effective, say, animal models that more reflect real tumours? Yes, indeed. Ultimately, the most effective way of modelling cancer is to trigger a tumour that arises spontaneously within a mouse, for example, and study the way that tumour develops and grows within the mouse. That much more closely recapitulates the growth of a tumour than does, for example, a human cancer cell line that is implanted in a mouse and grows and forms a tumour there. Thank you very much. That's Bob Weinberg from MIT. And uh, also in the studio, Stacey F. Stathew from the Pathology Department at Cambridge University. Stacey, got a couple of questions for you very quickly. The first one, uh, Joël Sim, I think that's how you'd say it, it's on Twitter, actually inquires, are viruses, in your opinion, intelligent life forms? Well, I, as a virologist, I'd say, yeah, very intelligent. I mean, they're elegant life entities um, that can reproduce themselves, that can cause persistent infections, reactivate a different type of intelligence, no brain cells involved. Indeed. But, uh, but it depends whether you believe a virus is alive or not. I mean, I, my own belief is a virus is not alive. It's just an infectious bag of genes. It is an infectious bag of genes and it undergoes evolution. So in some ways you could say it is a life form. But not intelligently designed, let's be honest to say that. Okay, I've okay, got another one for you from Lorna Garrity uh, in Sydney. And she says, what would the world be like if we didn't have viruses? Well, we wouldn't have colds and flus, and I guess it could be a really nice place. But, of course, viruses, uh, we've evolved with viruses, okay, over millions of years. And our whole immune system has been sort of uh, really evolved to respond to that infectious uh, assault. So if we didn't have viruses, our immune systems would be very different. And what would the consequences of that be? I'm not sure, but it, maybe it wouldn't be very nice. I think they'd evolve anyway, to be honest. Yeah. That's my belief. Thank you, Stacey. Well, on the subject of good questions, now it's time to join Diana O'Carroll for our question of the week. And she's basking in the evening glow, I'm told. This week is a day on top of a mountain, the same as a day at the bottom. Dear Naked Scientist, I am Alex, and I was just wondering, how many more hours of light 
would you get if you were sitting on the top of Mount Everest compared to someone at the same latitude sitting at sea level? Thank you. And here's the view from the top. Hi, I'm Dominic Ford from the Department of Physics in Cambridge. There are a couple of interesting differences in what you would see around sunrise and sunset on top of a tall mountain. And first of all, there would be a difference in how long the sun would spend above the horizon. You can think about that by imagining that the Earth is a ball, and if you're standing on the surface of that ball, it appears like a flat plane, it covers exactly half of everything you can see. Whereas if you move away from that ball up a tall mountain, it starts to recede away from you and appear like a globe in the sky. Now, the Himalayas aren't actually very tall in comparison to the radius of the Earth. Everest is about 9 kilometres high and the Earth is 6,000 kilometres in radius. So that means that even at the top of Everest, this ball would only appear about 174 degrees across as compared to 180. So that would make a difference of about 10 minutes in sunrise and sunset times if you assume that the Earth is a perfect sphere and Everest is the only mountain on the surface of the Earth. Now, in fact, that's not quite right because obviously Everest is in the middle of the Himalayas and you'll be familiar with the fact that if there's a tall hill on the horizon, then the sun will set behind the hill somewhat before published sunrise and sunset times. So on the top of Everest, the sun wouldn't spend that much more time over the horizon because it would set behind the mountains. But what about the bit in between sunset and total darkness? Now, there's a slightly different answer, because when we talk about hours of daylight, we tend to be talking about when we perceive it gets light and when we perceive it gets dark, rather than when the sun is rising and setting. And that's to do with twilight times and how long the sky appears bright after the sun has set. Now, in the UK, we're quite used to having a lot of twilight, and that's to do with the fact that we're at a relatively high European latitude, and when the sun sets, it sets at an oblique angle, and it actually spends quite a long time sitting on the horizon as it's setting. Everest, of course, is close to the equator, and at equatorial latitudes, the sun sets more or less vertically downwards, so it sets very quickly, and you don't have much twilight time as the sun is setting. Moreover, twilight is caused by the scattering of sunlight off particles in the Earth's atmosphere. And at the top of Everest, you're above most of the Earth's atmosphere. So you'll have a lot less light being scattered, and twilight will appear a lot darker. And so once the sun has set, it will get dark relatively quickly compared to what we're used to. So you might find actually there's slightly less daylight time on top of Everest than you would see, certainly here in the UK. While the sun may appear to set 10 minutes later if you're atop a mountain, the dark skies would envelop you much faster. And this is because the thinner atmosphere and the latitude prevent as much light from being scattered as happens during twilight in, say, the UK. And in the case of Everest, it's surrounded by other mountains that get in the way. On the forum, Don Juan wins our Maths of the Week prize for his attempts to calculate the differences in sunlight. He states that the area of a square on the hippopotamus is equal to the sunshine of the other two bits of stick, which means he needs to lie down in a darkened room. Next week, we remove all traces of sunlight for this question. 
Hello, I'm Jane from Cambridge and I have a question for you. Out of interest, having just discovered that when bees are attacked by something like a hornet, they can form a bee ball around it and boil it to death with all the heat generated in this ball, I was wondering whether it's theoretically possible that they could do the same to a human. Given unlimited bees, I suppose, I wonder how many you'd need. How many bees are needed to boil a human being? Answers on the forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum or to the usual email address, chris at thenakedscientists.com. Diana O'Carroll. And if you've got a question you'd like her to dianalyse for you, then do send it in, as she says, to chris at thenakedscientist.com. That's all we've got time for this week. I have to say a very big thank you to our contributors this week, Stacey F. Stathew, Bob Weinberg and Doug Fearon, and our wonderful production team, Kat Arney, Ben Valsler, Mira Senthalingham, Dave Ansell, Diana O'Carroll and Tom Simpkins. We're back next week with a look at the science of shipping. In fact, we'll hear how scientists are trying to build better boats that make them cope with turbulence better and more efficient, and also the sky sail, a giant kite that can cut a boat's fuel costs by an amazing 60%. Send your questions in that, on that to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a great weekend, and see you next time. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK FAST. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.